Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 55 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. As we discussed in a special episode late last week, given the large amount of opinions being issued and arguments being held at all levels that we cover, we may from time to time have theme episodes, and this episode is one such episode. On episode two, Pat and I discussed the Biometric Information Privacy Act, or BIPA, and don't use BIPA if you're in front of Judge Easterbrook, which we'll get to in a few moments. Uh, and today we discussed two arguments and a recent important decision that was issued uh, by the Illinois Appellate Court that factored into this overall BIPA mix and uh, standing and And that decision uh, was not argued. Uh, it was not it argued. It wasn't an oral right. argument. It just they and they have a footnote in the opinion as they're required to do saying, ah, we didn't need oral argument. We're just going to decide the thing, which they yep. did. Yep. So the first case today is from the Seventh Circuit, Latrina Cathrone versus White Castle System, Inc., Addressing when a claim under the act accrues. A whole system to make those little hamburgers. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, they, they, they make everything. So well, the yeah. White Castle system, they, they roll their own steel, everything. And it's a, it's an amazing. Oh, do they really? Yeah. I read that once about them. They're, they're one of those uh, that, that everything is, is uh, manufactured and designed. So, yeah, I guess the system is indeed needed. A, a okay. Interesting to, to serve. It's a lot of work to make little hamburgers. <laughs> to make little hamburgers, uh, the sliders. But in any event, the second case today is McDonald versus Symphony Bronzeville Park LLC, an Illinois Supreme Court case that will determine if workers' compensation is the remedy, the exclusive remedy for alleged violations of BIPA. We will then discuss, as Pat mentioned, an important decision that was issued by the First District Appellate Court uh, that likely will go to the Supreme Court of Illinois. But uh, has important features with respect to statute, statutes of limitation with respect to the various provisions of BIPA. With that, let's turn to the first case today, Cathrone. Uh, question, the, the uh, question uh, as mentioned, is when a claim under the act accrues, and commensurate with that question, whether there, there can be, uh, if there's one or multiple breaches of the act for each violation, a lot of discussion, uh, as Pat will go into in a, uh, shortly, uh, covered that in an oral argument about uh, whether you have one breach and then you're done, or if it's a continuing breach under the various uh, collection and uh, uh, dissemination. When the case was argued, uh, there was no Illinois appellate court decision on that issue, uh, but with the decision in Tim's versus Black Horse, there is an answer, although in dicta, to the second question, which bears an answer to the first question raised about when a claim accrues. Uh, there was a discussion about whether to certify the question to the Illinois Supreme Court as a manner of resolution. As Pat and I have discussed many times in this uh, podcast, we've talked about certification issues to the Illinois Supreme Court, to the Indiana Supreme Court, uh, to appellate levels. And with that, Pat, why don't you tell us about this oral argument in this uh, very interesting case and about Easterbrook's uh, uh, <laughs> uh, comments on on the use of, of BIPA. Thanks, Dan. Uh, yeah, let's start there. Uh, Judge Easterbrook was greatly annoyed, as he often is, with initialisms. And we've talked about this, too, previously on episode 22. And he, he said to both advocates did it. Both of them used the term BIPA. And he ended up just stopping bothering them about it. Uh, yeah. Uh, but he his his point is is that we're generalists. People get themselves into what he called their little corner of the law, and we don't know what you mean when you say BIPA. You need to use actual English words. These are the this is what he says routinely when lawyers use uh, what he calls initialisms, even when they tell them I'm going to call it this initialism. He's like, no, no, use the whole thing. So poor people have to end up saying whatever CERCLA stands for. They end up having to say the Comprehensive Environmental Whatever Act, and, and he, uh, it's 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 really annoying. <laughs> and, and he gave an admonition. They said that once you start using uh, initialisms, it's hard to stop. 
And uh, again, uh, so I, don't do that in front of him, especially he, with the appellant. Like you said, he gave up, but but uh, he admonished her. She started using the act, and then she fell back into Bipa. And he said he stopped her again. He said what? And then the appellee, I started laughing because the appellee uh, was using the act at first again trying to make sure that he was in, in compliance and then he slipped into BIPA and, and Judge Easterbrook finally gave up. So <laughs> he did. anyway, you, you get the, you get the point. It's, it's, it's one of those things. Don't do it. It's, it's, it's going to throw you off what they're trying to get at, which is let's talk about the substance as opposed to what you call the thing. So what about the substance? Dan mentioned certification and Judge Easterbrook pointed out quite rightly that a lot of these cases have been removed to federal court under what's called the Class Action Fairness Act. So let's take a moment to pause on that and, and talk about the Class Action Fairness Act. This uh, deals with what's required in order to have a sufficient amount of controversy for there to be subject matter jurisdiction in federal court. It lowers the bar for what's required. Um, it sets a minimum amount at, at issue of $5 million dollars. The law only applies to class actions with 100 or more members. Now, most of these, on, on the podcast, we're not generalists. We're specialists, and we specialize in all the things. So we get to use the term BEPA. Um, there you go. <laughs> and so in, in CAFA, they ease the requirements. Uh, so instead of requiring that all opposing parties be citizens, because you, can you imagine having a class of complete diversity? I mean, that with a size of over 100, that doesn't seem to really be a thing that would work. It only requires that at least one class member be a citizen of a state different than than that of the uh, the defendant. I'm not sure where uh, White Castle is located, but I doubt it's in Illinois. So they probably didn't have a problem with diversity here. Right. The statute directs courts to decline jurisdiction in certain certain situations, including when two thirds of the plaintiffs are from the state in which the case was initially filed. The injuries alleged in the lawsuit occurred in that state, and at least one defendant from the same state is allegedly responsible for a significant amount of the claims. This wouldn't really apply if you have an out-of-state defendant employer, which is what most of these BIPA cases are, is they're against employers. The other thing is, is in the three years before the lawsuit was filed, no comparable lawsuits alleging similar facts or asserting similar claims were filed. The right. statute also exempts some lawsuits from coverage for other reasons, such as class actions against state governments or state officials read the 11th Amendment, uh, and class actions that only involve claims arising from laws like the Securities Act of 1933. So why does that matter? The reason why that matters, because the issue in this case is when does a claim under BIPA accrue and subsidiary to that, how many can there be? Does Illinois follow the single publication rule on these kinds of things? Is publication required at all? How does this work? And so forth is because it's going to evade review in the federal courts or in the, by the state courts because all these cases are being removed to federal court. And so right. Judge Easterbrook's like, well, why don't we just send this to the Supreme Court and let them sort it out? Now, obviously, the, the defendants removed the case because they'd rather be in federal court and they'd rather be in front of the Seventh Circuit on this issue than they would rather be uh, in front of the Illinois Supreme Court, which is why they removed it. Uh, the Illinois Supreme Court has been very solicitous in the two cases they've decided so far on this and about to go three for three, as we're going to talk about in in, uh, in, in the uh, McDonald case, McDonald case. in Rosenbach first, they made a very expansive definition of what it means to be aggrieved under the statute. And then in West Bend versus Krishna Schomburg Tan, they held that uh, they held that there was uh, insurance coverage where you didn't have uh, a, a exclusion that specifically mentioned BIPA. And that there uh, there was publication, so it was covered under a CGL policy. Under under uh, it was covered under the CGL policy, under the advertising injury of the advertising CGL injury. Yep. So they've so far been solicitous of plaintiffs and claims of these kinds, as well as defendants in finding that there was coverage. So bad for insurers, bad for defendants, good for plaintiffs. You get yep. the idea. Uh, well, mixed bag for employers. So anyway, there's a lot of, why don't we just certify this and let the Supreme Court sort this out? There really isn't any Illinois state case on this issue. We don't know whether Illinois is going to follow, as I said, the single publication rule. So right. why don't we why don't we let these people decide it? Because you guys are doing everything you can to not have them decide it. <laughs> and so the issue, in this case, this woman went to go work for White Castle like in 2004 and then in 2008, 
they started using is when the statute gets passed and they use unbeknownst to the care, unpronounced to the employer. They didn't, uh, no one realized this uh, statute uh, was going to apply to all of them. And they, she then signs, they then begin to use her biometric information. They give it to a third party. And the question is how many, when did the statute, because if it's more than there's, the two statutes of limitations are either a one year for the publication statute and five years for the where we don't have any other statute to cover this thing. And right. she began to have her information disclosed in 2008. If that's the case, then she doesn't really have any claims. And if she doesn't have a claim, then the whole class fails because for lack of a appropriate class representative. Now, there may be others who may have claims uh, in the class. and They may be able to find somebody, but it won't be her right? if they're right. Who knows? We're going to find out. Uh, and then the question becomes, well, okay, so fine. The first time they did it wasn't within the statute. Let's assume that. But what about when it happened later? Again, do you get multiple publications such that you could bring it up within the statute of limitations, which considering she worked at the place for like 10 years or so afterwards, after they began, then you're talking about not only okay, each one of those is a violation and each are recoverable. So she signs in, signs out each day. That's at least twice a day. That's $500 a pop. That's $1,000 a day per person. I mean, you're talking about ruinous amounts of money. Yep. Or is it just the first time that it's done and you're done and that's it? I will say that's how those cases are being settled, as I understand it, from those handling them. Right. They're being settled about $1,000 per person. That's the, that's the right. market for these things. But if it's right that every time you do it, it's a violation and you could have more than one simultaneous violation, you could have thousands of dollars per violation per day per employee. You could be talking about if you violated all five parts of the act <laughs> on a day, twice a day, you're talking about $5,000 per employee per day. And then if you find that it's willful, it's $1,000 per violation, you're talking $10,000 Per employee per day. I, I, for the life of me, I can't understand how that's why that would be, how that could be the result. But that's certainly what we're dealing with here to understand the scope of the the claims we're talking about here and how just utterly ruinous this would be in situations where nobody's information has been stolen. Right. There's no evidence it's, in any of these cases that anybody's biometric information has been hacked. And that it's been and it's been misused in some way. So, which is what the Rosenbach course, just a simple violation is is aggrieved without ever actually having had your information used improperly. So, where's the injury? But that's not the law. They get to, they have standing yep. in state court. They wouldn't have standing in federal court, but they'd have standing in federal and state court on, on on that on that theory. So, uh, a very interesting issue and one that may find its way to the to the Illinois Supreme Court. In fact, I, I kind of expect it um, to, for them to send it that way because they want an answer. Dan, did I cover the waterfront on that one? You did. You know, when I was in-house at a, a life insurance company a few years ago, uh, as you noted, Pat, the, the, the going rate on these types of settlements, TCPA, can spam, all these statutory violations that we've talked about uh, on various episodes – uh, they they get settled at around uh, one one claim per person, uh, just because of the continuous. You know the, the the way these are written, like like this BIPA Act. If you look at it, it says each violation. But what is a violation? That's the key here. And I think that uh, one of the interesting questions I think from Easterbrook was about the junk facts, uh, kind of throwing doubt on it. it's only one publication and done. He said, well, with junk facts, every time the facts goes through, it's an, until you stop, right? And I, I think the appellant here was arguing. Look, uh, uh, it's to deter this behavior. But to your point, it, it would be ruinous for for any any employer. I mean, for anybody they'd be out of business or anybody. Right. And, and and as you said, there's really no there's been no injury in fact because not, nothing's been hacked. You know, so if someone came forward with that, then I'd, okay, fine. Then then, then you should pay for that issue, right? Yeah. yeah, that's a different that's a negligence claim, All right? As opposed to a statutory claim. This is a risk of privacy violation. Right. And I just, I, I, as with so many of these alphabet soup claims, I'm like, come on. Right. It, it, it's, it's really a bit much. It is. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with McDonald versus Symphony Bronzeville. 
We're back for segment two of episode 55 of the Podium and Panel podcast, where we're talking about McDonald versus Symphony Bronzeville. And last year, the Illinois Appellate Court First District, in a substantial decision for BIPA litigation, because as we mentioned in the first segment, most of these, or many of these cases, if not most, are arising out of the employer-employee relationship. And the court held, uh, the First District held that workers' compensation does not apply to bar claims brought by employees against their employers in civil court. In other words, saying that there was the exclusive remedy provision doesn't apply uh, so that they can file these claims. And Dan's going to tell us about the about that. Uh, answering a certified question pursuant to Rule 308. This is, so this was a certified question. It went from the uh, trial court to the appellate court and now has been certified to the uh, Illinois Supreme Court, the court said, we fail to see how a claim by an employee against an employer for liquidated damages under the Privacy Act, so yet another name for the the act, uh, available without any compensable actual damages being alleged or sustained and designed in part to be a preventative and deterrent effect, represents the type of injury that categorically fits within the purview of the Compensation Act, which is a remedial statute designed to provide financial protection for workers that have sustained an actual injury. I do love when you get to have a cause of action without having an actual injury. And the courts acknowledge you don't actually have an injury. The Supreme uh, Court will now decide the matter, uh, which is really critical for these these cases. Dan, tell us about the oral argument. Sure, Pat. Thanks. And um, the appellant opened up, said the Court of Appeals should be reversed. Uh, Plaintiff's workplace injury is not compensable. Uh, 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 under the Workers' Comp Act, even though satisfied every element of workers' comp, plain text of exclusivity, uh, and, and, and that the trial court and the appellate court failed to apply that. The exclusive remedy is kind of a bargain. Um, and, you know, th- there's a long history of workers' comp in, the, in this country. Illinois was among the first states to adopt, if not was. the first state to, have, to adopt a workers' compensation system. Something like 150 years, it's almost been around. And the, 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 the bargain is this, is that uh, plaintiffs give up um, certain uh, uh, additional claims and 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 going to court uh, in exchange for set amounts of compensation for particular injuries that that occur to them, and, and, and not having to prove causation, not having to prove causation. Right? It's a it's a no fault system, uh, a true no fault system, and the employers what they get in return is again they don't have to defend these cases in court. They don't have to have questions about whether it's insurable or not. Uh, if it's in the course of employment and scope of employment and, and is uh, uh, is caused while, while working, then the workers' comp exclusive remedy applies. Uh, the issue here, again, is this is a statutory violation. This is uh, there, there was discussion at the Illinois Supreme Court and questions uh, that had to do with Title VII and employment types of, of causes of action. Uh, this has come up a lot in recent uh, months uh, through the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, because typically illnesses that you get, get on the job, such as flu or cold or, or, or things like uh, COVID-19, uh, are not peculiar to the job. And so, as we've, I think we talked about in this show, but we've definitely talked about it, the CBM insurance law and other arenas about um the first responders and this broad definition in Illinois and other states that says that if you get COVID nineteen at at work, it's presumed that you got it from your work and it's covered. There was a there was a last spring there was an deal reached between management and labor that was enacted by the by the legislature to essentially lower the bar for employees who were working and got and contracted the disease. Um, there had been a rule passed by the commission. With that was almost immediately struck down as unconstitutional, but then there was a deal struck between the parties to try to allow that to be covered. Yep, and, and the appellant, you know, I, I really, really tried to, you know, bring this back into workers' comp. Um, the, the one of the, one of the arguments that uh, the appellant made was that there's no legislative or judicial exception to the exclusivity uh, for uh, BIPA violations. BIPA doesn't have any any type of uh, uh, language, and the Workers' Compact doesn't have any kind of language for this type of thing. Um, the 
compensability, according to the appellant, the law doesn't distinguish between physical and non-physical. Um, and I thought the, the, the one of the strongest arguments I thought that was made by the appellant uh, that I, I thought was was pretty um, a pretty decent argument uh, was that the plaintiff's injury here was caused by a piece of equipment that was provided by the employer as part of the duties. And uh, to take a step back, I think in episode two, Pat, I talked about uh, the the uh, BIPA and this and this uh, biometrics fingerprints, usually with the time card. And the reasons that this was done to begin with, when we look back to those times, is that many employers I've been at, if people were hourly, they had to check in and check out for lunch um, at, at CNA Financial when I was in-house. Uh, they came up with a system that you had to type something into your computer. And sometimes people would leave and forget to log out. And then they would call their friend. Hey, Pat, can you go in and type in my password or whatever so that I'm checked out, right? There was a lot of leakage and a lot of that type of thing at factories and at other places of employment. And so I think that's a, I think that's a pretty good argument that they were trying to comply with federal and state wage and hour laws. Right. Right. Cause you have to have accurate records and you have to, you, you can't really discipline someone that's, you say, well, you weren't here yesterday. No, I, I punched in and out and you know, there's no evidence. So in any event, I thought that was a pretty good argument. Um, the, um, uh, the court and some of the uh, justices uh, asked about a, a Pathfinder case and discussing the character of the injury. Uh, the, the appellant responded that he's not disputing that you cannot characterize the injury. Um, and then one of the interesting things here, I think, as well, was the plaintiff in this case characterized at first in her original complaint uh, mental anguish uh, and bodily injury. Then she changed the, this just as privacy statutory. Um, and and the, um, I, I think one of the interesting uh, arguments as well by the appellant here was, look, it, it doesn't mean that a plaintiff in this situation is without a, a remedy. They can go after the vendor of the biometric information collection, right, that they can uh, go statutory and, and get other relief here. But what we're talking about here again is this, uh, is it an injury that's in the course and scope of employment caused by the use of equipment or being on the premises of the of the employer, and so that's where the appellant was really um, um, uh, going. Uh, one of the justices, and I wasn't clear which which of the male justices was asking the question. I, I don't quite have their voices down yet. He he asked if if you're not was, the only one. Yeah, he asked if the remedy for the statutory damage is not belonging in court, whether that evaded the purpose of the BIPA Act, and ju doesn't just an injunction defeat really the important. Uh, purpose of, of BIPA. Uh, what what the, what the appellant again responded was that the the main focus of uh, BIPA uh, when it comes to employers is to stop the action in the employer-employee context. Um, and again, uh, you know, I think one of the, uh, it really didn't come out directly, Pat, but I think uh, as we talked about in the in the first case, I think there was some undertow of this kind of if employers are not protected by workers' compensation laws, that again, this gets into what we talked about in the first segment is the the calculation of these damages is is incalculable, right? And so at some point you end up with uh, a situation where it's astronomical. Uh, the other thing that, that really wasn't addressed by the justices or by either, either advocate is again, this, this injury, because again, workers' comp is designed for someone that either because of mental uh, uh, impairment or, or physical cannot fully work or is restricted in their ability to work. And again, there's no allegations in the complaint. It, it didn't sound like a, at any level that this plaintiff was arguing that because of having to put her fingerprint every day, that somehow she was not able to come back to work. And I think there was a little bit of question on that, right? Like, it, could it get so severe that, that mentally... It, it, the, the fear of this and, and the fear of, of potential disclosure that maybe that would prevent her her from working. But again, in this case, there, it, to my knowledge, took those allegations out. Right. And they so took the allegations out. So they're just dealing with the statutory damage. And I, I, I don't know. I, I, yeah. I, I mean, that's and that's kind of the, the and the appellee, you know, was arguing the opposite, of course. And again, I, 
I, there, there was questions about sexual harassment and those types of cases. And of course, those are, those are kept out. But the, in those cases, if there's sexual harassment or Title VII violations, there's an actual, there, there, there's something going on there, right? There, there is uh, uh, things that are not maybe prevent you from doing work, but they're, they're statutorily protected. And there's actual, other remedies. Actual remedies, right? There, there's, there's actual remedies. There's actual, you know, I, I just have a whole problem with the idea that we're going to compensate people that have, who have admittedly not suffered any injury. Fortunately, I mean, it's good that people's right? information hasn't been, uh, hasn't been stolen. Um, one would think that the threat of having liability for letting people's biometric information getting stolen and misused would be sufficient to create the uh, cr- create protections, and it seems generally to have worked. Uh, and I think before, long before BIPA came along and people realized that they had all these statutory requirements, somehow there wasn't a ton of biometric information being stolen and misused. Well, it seems it seems to me, Pat, too, that the, there there could be some application. We talked about the case with the uh, Fair Credit Reporting Act in OFAC. The, the one individual, remember the TransUnion. class, TransUnion, he got uh, the one guy who was disclosed, got protection from the Supreme Court of the United States. The other people failed in their ability to be part of a class because there was well, no... There, yeah, well, the class ended yeah. up being like just under 2,000 people as opposed to right. 8,000 people. But this guy actually had an injury. Right. You know, he actually wasn't able to buy the car. He was embarrassed, whatever, you know, how whatever the value right. of that is. But that seems to me to be not cla- not appropriate for a class, number one. Right. And uh, because it's individualized, um, right. which is all these cases are class actions. There isn't enough money to do them otherwise. Um, which is one of the reasons why you go into comp because you can't have class there. Um, right. That's one right. of the advantages for the uh, for the defendants in getting it into comp. So with that, we will take our next break and come back and talk about Tim's versus Black Horse Carriers and then several recent decisions uh, from the Illinois and Indiana Supreme Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We are back for segment three of episode 55 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we're turning to an important decision issued by the Illinois Appellate Court First District in Tim's versus Black Horse Carriers. The uh, Illinois Appellate Court First District held that we therefore find that section 13201 covers actions under section 15C and D of the act, while section 13205 governs actions under section 15A, B, and E of the act. To translate uh, for you that don't have the statutes in front of you, and we'll talk about them in the rule of the week just to remind you of what they are. Uh, there, there's a one-year statute of limitations for alleged violations of sections 15C and D as they involve publication, and there's a five-year statute of limitations for alleged violations of sections A, B, and E. And as we talked about in the Cathrone case, this, this can be informative for the Seventh Circuit when it decides their case. Pat, tell us more about this important decision and some other uh, concerning comments that came out of the out of the court. So this is not the first time that a court has treated the different sections of uh, BIPA differently. Uh, in Bryant versus Compass Group, the Seventh Circuit held that there was standing for Section 15B, but not for Section 15C. Uh, I think I've got that right, uh, yep. of, this, of, the, of the act, because one involved an actual injury and one uh, and, and and one did did not, and so you that so depending upon what you allege, you get to be in or 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 out of court. Um, but the most important comment from the 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 Tim's case is I I think is in dicta. I think it's dicta. I think um, it is. I think it's obiter dicta because it wasn't. Uh, that's what I think it is. Um, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I've read it a couple times, and it may not be as bad as I initially thought, but it may also be. I'll just read it. As Section 20, this is, the, this is a section of the Act, 
provides that, quote, a prevailing party may recover for each violation. A plaintiff who alleges and eventually proves violation of multiple duties could collect multiple recoveries of liquidated damages. Now, I could read that to be each time you, you, you violate it one time, well, suppose you violate all five parts of the act that say don't do these, these things. That could be one violation the first time you did it and no more. It accrues that one time, maybe. Or it could be each time you do it, it's a violation. And that's where I talked about in the first segment about how you could get to, if you define it intentional, it becomes $1,000, I think, it's a, a violation. And now you're at, if it's twice a day, or I'm not counting lunch, I'm just counting in and out. You're talking about $10,000 a day. If you do count in and out at lunch, you're talking about $20,000 a day per employee. I mean, it's just, it, it just runs wild. To uh, to quote a term from why days is a uh, uh, certified legal intern in Florida with the public defender's office, when you didn't, when you had the time running consecutively as opposed to concurrently, the expression that's used is time running wild because that's what it is. The time, It's running wild. It's just, it's just doing its thing. Um so we'll see if I imagine there was a 28J letter written, uh, probably already to the Seventh Circuit on the topic. Uh, Justin, judges, uh, you need to take a look at this opinion over here because right. the Tim's decision I think came out like the day after the it did. after the argument in the um, Cathrone case, and in fact it was referenced, kind of to give us the court kind of asked well, where where did the court stand on this, and he referenced a case it was obvious that counsel was referring to the Tim's case. Hey, there's a case on this that's related, but not exactly. Well, here it is. And, you can see how it's related, and, talking about which statute applies. And and, and the the counsel, the, the advocate uh, in the Seventh Circuit said that it was early in the stages. There were a, a case, it was early in the stages. Well, he, well, he, he said it had been briefed for a while, but hadn't been had argued. Hadn't been briefed, hadn't been argued. Right. So, and he yeah. didn't know that it had, wasn't going to be argued because the opinion <laughs> came out the next day. <laughs> right. So right. I... For those that aren't familiar, a 28J letter is like a letter you write to the court in federal court that uh, updates them on something that's happened, uh, whether it's another case or it's something that's happened in the litigation. Hey, you should know this, and you can supplement with that. Sometimes you're invited to write the letter. Sometimes you can just do it do it yourself. I think we've mentioned that as the rule of the week before. Um, the other thing about this decision, and I, I'll give credit where it's due, Tim Rowe over at Tressler had an interesting post on LinkedIn about the potential insurance implications of this. Because if you don't have publication, remember we mentioned publication with regards to Krishna Tan uh, in West Bend, if you don't have publication under sections A, B, and E of the act, then there's no insurance coverage in all likelihood. Uh, because that's how they found publication, uh, is because they said that there had been this disclosure to the third party. So ripple effects all over the place. Um, and I say ripple effects because the the uh, the the oral argument in Seventh Circuit was before Judges Rovner and Easterbrook, I think. If I got this wrong, and Judge and Judge Ripple yep. wasn't there, so That's ripple right. ripple effects. Ripple effects. <laughs> so uh, we'll see what the uh, how this Tim versus Black Horse Carriers opinion plays out. But uh, the price of poker may have gone up uh, in right. in resolving these matters depending upon how that language is read by the Seventh Circuit, by other courts, if it if it means what the the, the worst thing it could mean from the defense perspective. Um, I'm not sure. It, it's susceptible to more than one interpretation. It's at best ambiguous. But it, it seems my my first reaction was, ooh, that that's that's not good. <laughs> that's no. that that's that's a lot of money um, it is. we're talking about. So with that, Dan, uh what you want to do our prediction sure to go wrong for this week? Sure. What do you think about Cathrone? I think I I think it's going to be certified. I don't think I think they're going to punt the thing. I don't think they know. Yeah. I'm not sure they. I, I I think Judge Easterbrook's just like I don't know. Um, I think they're going to certify the question. I agree with you, and especially in light of Tim's and again that language is uncertain. They 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 I think will certify and try to get res resolution from the Supreme Court. And then uh, McDonald. There is no earthly way this gets reversed. Nope. <laughs> I agree. No earthly I way. Agree. As much as and I it, think that would be the right result, there's no earthly way that's happening. And if it did, holy cow, like 
employers in the state, you better tear out those bios metrics right away and, and stop the damages because you're you're in a boatload. Or of just hurt. comply. Yeah. They can just consent. comply. It's not that yeah. hard to comply. Well, I'm, and, and most, you know, a lot of clients have and in, in, in companies, not not clients, but a lot of lot, most most employers have because, you know, like you said, for uh, from 2008 till about 2016, this thing was dormant. And then plaintiff's lawyers, you know, uh, unearthed this this treat that they got this gift back in 2008. And so employers have been a lot of employers have been sued. If you look at the dockets every day in the surrounding counties and in Cook County and the in, in the Northern District of Illinois, there's always at least one BIPA case almost every day when we get our our daily kind of notices at, at the firm. So, so with that, that brings us to our uh, results from the week, and we had uh, five cases come down. Um, I, I think we're sixty-eight, eleven, and five now. Um, I, think that's right. I, I think we had one more. So let's start with Berg versus McMurray College. These are the tenured faculty that uh, they don't get a con- they don't have a contract. The contract nope. had already run out, and when the contract had already run out, you don't get to get it renewed. So yep. you're you're and, and oh by the way, that employment contract was just or the employment manual was just it's some of the things that right. that are that some of the policies. It's not all the policies. It's not exhaustive. Boy, is that an employer-friendly uh, decision? And it had a sentence at the end says, "If you have any questions or something's not covered, uh, talk to your administration." Uh, great. Okay, that's really yeah. helpful. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, this is the art of writing as vague and as broad an employment manual as you could to get out of any problem. So, bully yeah. for the college that's now defunct. They did right. one thing right. They wrote an employment right. manual right for themselves. Right. Uh, the next, so that was from the Illinois Appellate Court, Fourth District. The next one is from the Indiana Supreme Court, Reese versus Tyson Foods. So all you chicken lovers out there, uh, doesn't matter how long the grass is, as long as it stays on their property, if they block the line of sight of an elderly gentleman who hits a motorcyclist, too bad for the motorcyclist, as long right. as the grass stays on their property. Yeah. Um, and I get and that one about arguments- right. Yeah, there, there was arguments about the grass, but it stayed on the property. Yeah, it stayed on the sway. property. Yeah, so of course it did because it's it, it's planted. Like, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it kind of remind. Yeah, I don't know. It's just it, it kind of yeah. reminded me. I think we may have talked about it at the time because it blocked the light. It's kind of like that case everyone yep. reads, the Eden Rock versus Fountain Blue. That you know, right. you don't have a right to air air and light. Uh, you don't apparently have that on the roads either in Indiana. Um, right. Eigner versus Tiernan. I'm going to have to bite my tongue. Dan, yeah. tell us about Eigner versus Tiernan before, I, here, before I tear my hair out. Sure. The, the, the question here was, may commence a new action. Does it mean a new lawsuit? And the court said, yes, it does. You can even have a new number and everything. Uh, this was a case where uh, the uh, case was about to go to trial. The plaintiff uh, decided to get some additional surgery on his shoulder, I think, and back. And so uh, voluntarily withdrew the case. Which you're allowed wait, to do in Illinois. Which you're allowed under, to do. Under Section 1009 of the Code of Civil Procedure, you're allowed one voluntary dismissal. And then and you're allowed to refile under 13217. And it's the 13217 that has the commence a new action. Yeah. So what happened here, Dan? They filed a new lawsuit 11 months after. No, no, uh, no, no, no. They didn't file the new lawsuit. You filed a notice to reinstate. That's right. In the notice old to reinstate. Case. Right. And then and, he and, filed a new lawsuit after that didn't work five months after the statute had run. Right. And, and the, the, it was that one that was moved to dismiss. Yeah. And so the, so that one was moved to dismiss the appellate, the trial court said, no, I'm not going to dismiss it. The appellate court said, yeah, you can't, you, you, it's, that's not timely. Right. The Supreme court takes the question on the 308 certification. I'm sorry. I'm taking this over, but it, oh, it, no, no, it just kills me. Please, please. The, the, the Supreme Court takes the case. It holds that the lawsuit was not timely filed. Great. That's true. Except we've mentioned this before. They have this supervisory authority under the state constitution, Article 6 of the state constitution. They exercised it. They said, you know that 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 reinstate thing in a dead that he filed in a case that was dead and he needed it needed to have been a motion to reinstate. We're going to use our supervisory authority and in the interest of justice and because the trial court's order 
said you can reinstate the case, which was improper. That's not what the statute says. Judge, a circuit court judge turns out doesn't get to rewrite the law, except when they can. And the and we're going to treat that as a motion to vacate the dismissal, because that's in the interests of justice. So the eight, so the original filing was a 14L case on a 2012 accident. Lawsuit gets dismissed in 2017 voluntarily, and then the new filing comes in 2018. And it was the 18L case that got appealed. Right. They reinstated the 2014 case. Yeah. That's By the time this dismissed. mandate gets issued and they go back to court, it's going to be in 2022, 10 years after the accident. And, and basically take the statute of limitations and blow it up. Because one of the purposes of the statute of limitations is witnesses die, memories fade, documents get destroyed. No, we're just going to rewrite the statute and because we're going to save this one. Now, I can tell you, I, I happen to know, there is a legal malpractice case that was already pending against the lawyer that screwed this up. Well, that case is getting dismissed because right. he just got saved. Uh, the Supreme Court win. just saved this guy. It wasn't like the plaintiff didn't have a remedy. It no. just wasn't an, a tort remedy, or not that tort remedy. It was a different tort remedy. It was a legal malpractice claim. I, well, that, my, my, the decision my question, really aggravates me. My question here, Pat, is is how this is in the interest of justice being served, and it serves the plaintiff, but how does it serve, the like you just talked about, the economies of the court, witnesses, testimony, and for the defendant in this case? You, Why you now, does she have to be subjected to... Uh, trial on a lawsuit that was set for 2017, five years after the original action. Right. We're now five years, going to be five years past that. By the time the mandate gets issued, uh, any petition for rehearing is filed or anything like that that happens. By the time the case winds its way back down to the to the uh, circuit court, it's going to be 2022. And where, where are her rights? Why do her rights not matter? The statute well, of limitations is a, is a protection for defendants. Right. As I, and as I said, it's not like the plaintiff didn't have a remedy. Right. She did. Um, next. <laughs> Sproul versus State Farm. Uh, Dan, uh, this is another Illinois Supreme Court case. These cases, Eigner, Sproul, and the next case we're talking about, Hagi, all came down on the same day. All bad for defendants. Yep. Uh, Sproul versus State Farm is an insurance coverage case. Why don't you tell us about that? Sure. This had to do with labor costs and actual cash uh, value depreciation uh, yeah depreciation um uh depreciation going into actual cash value um the the certified question that the appellate court had uh answered the negative uh was where illinois insurance regulations provide that the actual cash value of an insured damage structure is determined as replacement cost of property at time of loss less depreciation if any and the policy does not itself define actual cash value only the property structure and materials are subject to a reasonable deduction for depreciation and depreciation may not be applied to the intangible labor component. And the uh, Supreme Court said, we therefore answer the certified question in the negative uh, from the appellate court's judgment, affirming the circuit court's judgment, remand the case to the circuit court for further proceedings. So again, as you said, a bad case for defendants and for insurers. Um, so What's interesting here is that the is that there's a huge split in authority across the country. There is about half the courts have said it's unambiguous in favor of insurers and you can depreciate labor in an actual cash value policy, and other courts have said it's ambiguous, so therefore we construe it against the insurance company, and the um, and so the insurer win or sorry, I'm sorry the insured wins. The fifth district said it's unambiguous in favor of the insured. And that therefore the insured wins on that basis because how could you depreciate labor? Ignoring all the case law that says, well, the thing, the roof or whatever is a is a whole and labor is part of it. Right. The Supreme Court says, no, that's wrong. The the provision is ambiguous. The state farms interpretation is reasonable. The insurance interpretation is reasonable. Where they're both reasonable, tie goes to the insured. So that that was a, a bit of a change, but it doesn't really help State Farm in this case. No, uh, it's a it's a putative class action. Uh, we'll see where that goes. State yep. Farm has since rewritten their policy or added in language to define this. So the next battle 
This case is really about the next battle. And the next battle is whether you can do that. Whether they can do that, Can right? you define labor to be depreciated? Right. And that's where, that's the next fight. That'll so be the next question. This is the Lawyer Full Employment Act. We're all yes. in favor of that, Dan and I, being lawyers. That's right. Which I brings us to Hagi versus Zavala. And, and Dan, talks about that. So this is part of a long-standing fight, like the last case, where State Farm has been trying to get uh, protective orders to be able to get medical records uh, for fraud detection and for underwriting and other purposes beyond the litigation in the case. And let's just say, in a, in a word, the Supreme Court said, yet on that. Uh, okay. It, they found that it was a violation of the Illinois state constitution under the privacy clause. They found it was a violation of the federal constitution because they found that that HIPAA and the privacy rule are were um, controlled over the state any contrary state statute. They found that the Cook County standing order on qualified protective orders was essentially unconstitutional. They held that reverse preemption under the McPherson-Ferguson Act didn't apply. Uh, this They go point by point, and they just knock down every single argument that was holding up the more expansive qualified protective order urged by State Farm and used in Cook County. So the implications are substantial in Cook County. They are substantial statewide. I have written about this in the Chicago Daily Law Bolt, and we need a standard order. We're going to get it. It's not going to look like the one that State Farm wanted that allows no. for a very expansive use. It, the court also gave a, a win to insurers, not the one they wanted, but a win insofar as you don't have to keep these records. Just put the QPO in your in your claims file, and that's your get-out-of-jail-free card when the, when the Department of Insurance complains that you don't have the medical records. Right. Okay. I mean, it, right. you don't have to keep the records. They wanted the records. <laughs> right. They wanted the records. And so they're not going to get the records. Uh, they're going to have right. to destroy them. And and I, you can expect some litigation over that, as well as rewriting us qualified protective orders and, and, and so forth. So this was a, a, uh, um, a stinging rebuke of what had been sought to be done and had been done for many years in Cook County. So with that, Dan, that brings us to the rule of the week, which are really rules, uh, sections 13201 and 13205 of the Illinois Code of Civil Procedure that deal with statutes of limitations. Why don't you tell us about those? Those were addressed in the Tim's case. Tell us more about that. Sure, sure. Section 13201 is defamation and privacy, and, and it says that actions for slander, libel, or for publication of a matter violating the right of privacy shall be commenced within one year next after the cause of action accrued. And as we've talked about again, with these types of things, the publication and facts are, are so uh, intense. And so if you had a longer statute of limitations, right, you might not be able to piece it back together, especially in the current environment, although this law was written many years before uh, the internet. Um, so section 13205 is a five-year limitation. And it says it is, except as provided in section 2725 of the uniform Commercial Code as amended, and Section 1113 of the Illinois Public Aid Code as amended. Actions on unwritten contracts, expressed or implied, or on awards of arbitration, or to recover damages for an injury done to property, real or personal, or to recover the possession of personal property or damages for the detention or conversion thereof, and all civil actions not otherwise provided for shall be commenced within five years next after the cause of action accrued. And so, as Pat talked about uh, in the Tim's decision, the Tim's court kind of bifurcated between this one-year and five-year statute of limitations based on publication versus not. And so, that's where we're at until that court that that decision goes to the Supreme Court or uh, gets certified and gets thrown, and we, we get some answers. I do like the expression five years next." I, I, five years well, next. the five years next. I'm not sure how else to say it. It's a very efficient way to say it. It is. Uh, it, 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 everyone knows what you mean. It, it, this, this expression, the number of years next. Yeah, the, the second statute is kind of the catch-all in the federal system. The catch-all is six is. years in right. the in the state in the Illinois state system. It's five years um, for anything that isn't otherwise specified. You got to have something uh, right. to to pick up everything that wasn't already specified. There's all kinds of statute of limitations for construction injuries and 
professional liability. There's, you know, the attorneys got one, doctors got one, uh, insurance brokers have one. I mean, everyone's got their own little, their own little statute of limitations. This one catches all the ones that Rent, aren't otherwise. Written bought. contracts has one. Written contracts has, has one. Yeah. You get the yep. idea. Yeah. So with that, um, we, uh, as Dan mentioned, we've got a lot of oral arguments and a lot of, and, and then first Monday is coming soon. So uh, we're going to have some there as well. Uh, we've got, a, uh, there were five, our, my, my column this week is going to be on the eight civil arguments heard in the Illinois Supreme Court over the last couple of weeks. And we're going to do some of those. Um, and there's a lot of very interesting issues I'm going to be posting on about those. And we'll talk about I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.